Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? If you don't have a Bible, you can use one from the pew rack in front of you. Look at Ephesians 6 this morning. If you're a little rusty on Ephesians 6, it's on page 1159. 1159 in the Pew Bible. 1159 Ephesians chapter 6. As we continue our epic journey through Ephesians. For those of you just joining us, we've been studying Ephesians since about September of last year, and we're almost finished. We're just kind of crawling through it verse by verse, and it's been amazing, hasn't it, how inexhaustible God's Word is, that even when you crawl through it at snail's pace, there's all these riches that you keep uh, sort of drumming up as we, we study the Bible. And so we come to Ephesians 6, this critical passage on parenting. Look at Ephesians 6.1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I still have this uh, vivid memory about seven years ago to the day, I was next door in the parsonage when my wife and I used to live there. And I have this vivid memory of being upstairs in the bedroom, standing next to her and looking down in the crib at our first child who just came home from the hospital. And, and you know, you're home, it's just the two of you, you're looking in, there's the little you know, baby in this big, huge crib. You're kind of staring at her. And I remember having this feeling, and it was kind of like... Uh, now what? <laughs> what do we do? I mean, it was great when we were at the hospital. There were doctors and nurses coming in and out and you know, class on, classes on how to wash the baby and classes on how to do this and that. And then they send you home and, you know, what? How do you raise a child? It's an incredibly daunting prospect. And it's a great irony that on the one hand, it's one of the most critical uh, weighty responsibilities any human being can have to raise another human life. It's so overwhelming. It's this huge responsibility, but ironically, there's no instructions. You know, I went to uh, the diaper bag that the hospital gave me, and I look inside, and there's some ointment for something, I don't know what, and there's some little diapers, and there's little onesies, and a couple of rags and things, but where's the instruction book? You know, I have my VCR instruction book, I have my cordless phone instruction book. Where's the baby instruction book? I mean, how do you raise a child? What do you do? Do you subscribe to Parenting Magazine and just do whatever it says? How, how do you know? Some of you were blessed with good parents. And so part of it is you can look at what your parents did and you can say, okay, I want to do that. I want to do that. Some of us, though, had mediocre parents. Some of us had terrible parents. And so we look back and we say, okay, I know I, what I don't want to do, but how do you raise a child? It's an incredibly... Uh, uh, just heavy thing when you really think about it. So there I was standing there thinking, what do we do now? How, how do you raise this child up? How do we you know, keep them from having to go to years of therapy because of our mistakes? You know, how do we protect our children? And so I think today's text is just so vital because this isn't Dr. Phil. This isn't uh, uh, Parenting Magazine. This isn't the latest pop child-rearing theory that's selling millions of copies. This is God's Word. God, who invented the whole having children thing, is the one who can tell us 
how it is to be uh, parents. In fact, he's the father who has us as his children. And us having children is a copy or an image of him. The reason God invented having children and being parents of children is so that we as human beings might have a little bit of an understanding of what it means for him to be our heavenly father. He created us as a sermon illustration to understand him. And so it's God we have to look to for what it means to be a, a great father or a great mother. And so we come to verse 4, which is the text I want to look at this morning, which says, Fathers, and this could apply to mothers too, but of course in, the, in a Greek household, the father was the lord of the house. So Paul addresses this to fathers, but it could be just as well to mothers. Fathers, mothers, grandparents, if some of you grandparents here watch the kids and you're the primary guardian, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's a negative here, don't exasperate. Then there's a positive, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And what I want to do is look at each of those two commands, the negative and the positive, with two different sermons. So this Sunday I want to look at the negative, don't exasperate. And next Sunday I want to look at the positive, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And the reason, now you see why we can't get through with Ephesians. Uh, but but the, the reason I want to do this is because I think it's so critical. It's so vital because there is such a, a lack, such a dearth of, of good parenting information out there. And a lot of stuff that is out there is just like, what? You know, where's this coming from? So as Christians, we want to ground our lives in the Bible. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is that this is our, our foundation for how we learn about life and what God wants us to do. So today, do not exasperate your children. That word exasperate is interesting. In Greek, it literally means don't anger your children. Don't make them mad. Now, what is that saying? That you should never make your children angry? That, that uh, if your two-year-old throws a tantrum or your 12-year-old storms off to her room and slams the door, we should just run after him and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, whatever I did, I'm sorry. Here, you can have what you want. I don't want to make you mad. Well, you know, of course not. You could never parent. I mean, part of parenting is the assumption that you know what's best for your child, or at least more likely to know what's better, and so you, you show your child that, and sometimes they're not going to like it. So, of course, it doesn't mean you can never make your kids angry. I, I think this is a good translation that really captures the, the point of the text. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. So it's not about a passing emotion. It's not about whether or not your kids get mad sometimes because they don't like what you said. It's about uh, burning your child out. It's about destroying your child's spirit, wounding their soul with the wrong kind of, of parenting. In fact, if you want to, put a finger here in Ephesians and flip over two books to Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, just a few pages. Don't flip too far. About three pages in this Bible. Look at Colossians 3. Now, you remember we've talked about the fact that Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. Uh, they have very parallel structures and content. In fact, many scholars kind of scratch their heads and try to figure out why Ephesians and Colossians are so similar. Did Paul write them one after the other? Why, why do they look this way? And so we come to Colossians 3, and, and one of the good things about the similarity between Ephesians and Colossians is that if something is fuzzy in Ephesians, you can sometimes look at Colossians and shed light on Ephesians and vice versa. So look at Ephesians, or Colossians 3.20. 3.20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children. 
or they will become discouraged. So that's it. It's the embittering of children. It's not just don't make your kids mad. Don't ever make them upset. I mean, they're going to get upset about things you say. They're going to get upset about rules. We all do. But, but it's don't embitter them. Don't crush the spirit. Don't drive them to such a point of despair that their little hearts become hardened and angry and wounded in a, in a deep and profound way. That's what it's a warning against. You see, God has given, God has delegated some authority to parents. If you're a mom and a dad, you have a God-given authority over your children. God's given that to you. It's not absolute, but it's a delegated authority from God. You really are in charge. God really has made you in charge. That's why God says to the children back in Ephesians 6, obey your parents. Obey assumes that the parents are in charge. This is the way God has structured the family. It's not a democracy. Parents, you really are in charge. But the problem is, of course, anytime you give authority and power to people, there's a tendency to abuse power. This always happens because we're fallen human beings, and that's why we, we distrust and sort of hold authority and suspicion sometimes, because we know that people in authority can abuse that authority. Same thing in the family. So what I think Ephesians 6.4 is, the first part anyway that we're studying, is it's, it's a, a guard against the abuse of parental authority. So when Paul says, fathers don't exasperate your children, and we could say mothers don't exasperate your children, what he's saying is, yeah, you are the authority. God has given you authority in the family in order to train up and nurture and encourage and build and develop a godly child who's going to be a responsible adult. God's given you that authority. But be careful with it, because power and authority is a dangerous thing, and it can be so easily misused, so instead of being constructive, it's destructive. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Don't exasperate your children. Be careful. Don't, don't fry them. So how then do we exasperate children? Not that I want you to, but I'm going to think with you about you know, how, how that happens. How do parents, sometimes inadvertently, do things that embitter, exasperate, discourage, and steal the hope of children? And what I'd like to think with you just in the time here is quickly think of five ways and we could probably think of more, but five ways in which parents can exasperate children, five things we should guard against. And the first way that we exasperate children is uh, through what we might call under the, the rubric of excessive harshness. Excessive harshness, that's number one. Excessive harshness. And, and of course, this follows logically that if you're in authority over a child, or if you're in any position of authority, there's always a danger of being too harsh. And so we have to be careful of being too harsh with our children. Obviously, an example of being too harsh would be abuse. I mean, that's sort of a no-brainer, extreme example of excessive harshness. You know, punching a child or kicking a child or throwing a child across the room. I mean, this is just out of bounds. This is abuse. And, and it's excessive harshness. And we don't have to go into, I hope we don't have to go into all the psychological evidence of how destructive abuse is to children or to anybody. It, it just destroys people. And, and so that's an example. It crushes a child's spirit. It will exasperate and ruin a child. Uh, but it's not just physical excessive harshness. It can be emotional excessive harshness. You know, you come home tired. It's been a very long day. You are just at your wit's end. It's now 15 minutes past bedtime. Your children are still up. And so you say, please, just go into your room now and get your pajamas on. This is all hypothetical, by the way. <clears throat> and you say, uh, you know, go to your room and get your pajamas on. 
Phone rings, you're on the phone for 10 minutes, you put the phone down, go in, kids still aren't in their pajamas. They're like, you know, dancing around the room. And so, you know, you just feel it, you just snap. You're like, hypothetically, of course. And, and you're just at your wit's end. And it's been a long day, and it's like all the frustration is now just centering on these children. And you're like, would you please get your pajamas on? <laughs> And the problem is, and you, know, you should be mad, because your children have just flat out disobeyed you. It, you should be mad when your children disobey you. It's normal to feel angry. But the problem is, you find yourself this, with this much anger. You know, the dial is turned up to 11. It's like, Wah! all the way up. And what the children did was about this big. That's the problem. It's that, it's that sense of balance. And, and when children constantly live in an environment where the emotional atmosphere is about everything. You know, it's, it's like living at the foot of a volcano. And you never know when the thing's going to erupt and what's going to happen. And you just start, you know, you, you live your whole life tensed up. And, and kids who live in homes where they're just, let's just say it, angry parents who are just always emotionally teetering on the brink of insanity, yeah, that's going to embitter a child. So emotionally, there can be excessive harshness. Obviously, you have to express displeasure when your children do something wrong. It's normal. But, but what is it? You know, it has to be sort of measured to the, the, the crime and, and the punishment kind of have to fit each other. So that's another way that we can exasperate children. But not just physically and emotionally. What about verbally? You know, oh, you're such a bad kid. Why do you always do that? What is wrong with you? See that kid across the street? He never does that. I wonder if they'll trade you with, you know, I could trade kids with the people across the street. Ha, 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 I'm just kidding, just kidding. You know, we say just kidding to our kids after we cut them down. But, you know, I just have to keep reminding myself, my kids are little. Not just physically, but their hearts are little and they're tender. And just a stray cut down, an insult, a put down that I think is just funny can really wound a child. And it just can stick a stray word like that because children really are tender we have to be so careful with them and the words we use see if i have a problem with my kid i need to talk to my kid and deal with it i I need to say look this is the behavior or the issue that i want to address with you and i need to address that with the child i don't have to put them down and i certainly don't want to talk about my children in front of other people i mean I, i see parents do this Oh, yeah, and this is my, uh, my youngest. This is the problem child. <laughs> you know, just last week they did this, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the, and everyone's kind of laughing, and the child's like, you know, gee, can I ever live this down? You know, I did this a week ago, and then I was grounded, and now that's over, but it seems like my sins just keep following me. I mean, do you want to cause despair in a child? Send a message that, that they never get a second chance. That'll cause despair in a child. It's another form of excessive harshness. And so when you have authority as a parent, we have to be so careful how we use that authority that God has delegated to us and not to use it excessively because that will embitter, exasperate, provoke, whatever you want to say, a child. Excessive harshness in all of its forms. But there's another type of excess. Not only is there excessive harshness, the second type of excess is what we might call excessive favoritism. Excessive harshness and excessive favoritism. Look, we all know what favoritism does to kids. I mean, some of you are raised in families where there were favorites. 
and you know it, and you're 50 years old today, and you're still mad about it. <laughs> because favoritism, oh, it just, it, it makes someone so angry to feel that sense of injustice. And the hard thing is that favoritism is a natural kind of thing in some ways. I mean, obviously, as your kids get older, they're going to be different. One's going to be an introvert, one's an extrovert, one's an artist, one's an athlete, one's compliant, one's defiant. And you're naturally, because of who your personality is, you're going to click with one more than the other. And so it, it's just sort of a normal thing to like a child or, or to get along better with one child than the other. And so I think parents have to work extra hard at staying impartial and fair toward their children. Because when children get a sense that this is mom's favorite or that's dad's favorite, I mean, that, that goes on for years and years, the anger and the resentment for that. I, I've talked to people who are, who are elderly and sometimes they'll talk about their families. And they'll say, oh yeah, so-and-so was always the... They were always the golden child, wasn't me. It's like, that was, you know, 50 years ago. But it just lingers, it lingers. Think about some of the stories in the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament is full of stories of, of favoritism in families, whether it was Isaac and Rebekah. You know, they had these twins, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac liked Esau, and, Re- and, uh, and Rebekah liked Jacob. Get all that straight. And, and you can read the story, all these problems in the family because each one sort of had their favorite. Or Jacob, you know, he has, goes on, he has 12 sons. You know the story. He has these 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And who is Jacob's favorite? Joseph. Joseph gets the technicolor dream coat. All right? Dad makes him the special chieftain's robe. You know, this is the favored one. This is my, my special son. And the, the other boys just... They're murderous toward him. They hate him, and they end up selling him into slavery to Egypt. And you can read the whole story. I mean, the Bible is full of stories. That's one of the things I love about the Bible, is that the heroes in the Bible are not portrayed as larger than life. One of the great things about the Bible is that the heroes of the Bible are sinful people who make mistakes, and yet God uses them nonetheless, which is encouraging to me. But, and this is, again, true. I mean, Jacob makes this mistake. He plays a favorite. Joseph is his favorite. And it has disastrous consequences for his family. And so favoritism is such a dangerous thing. We have to be impartial and fair as parents in everything that we do toward our children. Excessive harshness will embitter a child. Number two, excessive favoritism will embitter a child. Number three, how about excessive expectations? Excessive expectations. You know, you've got to succeed. I think this is a dangerous one for us who are suburbanites because one of the high suburban values is success, uh, which is usually defined monetarily and positionally in society. Succeed, push, 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 push. Uh, you've got to have three AP classes, and you've got to be the captain of the sports team, and you have to do this extracurricular activity, and you have to play a, an instrument. You know, and we push our kids so hard. In fact, it was interesting. I went to uh, Rich Chamberlain, who's our youth pastor, and I, I said, hey, Rich, I'm uh, writing a sermon on parents don't exasperate your children. I said, give me a way parents exasperate their children. And without even thinking, without even having to ponder it, he just said, expectations. He said, that was the one that just poof, popped right out of his mouth. Expectations. He said, that, that's the one I see more than anything else is this kind of you know, pushing and pushing children to, to do better and better and better and the kids can't make mistakes and they can't have a chance to breathe. They're just constantly being carted around to activities. And when do the children just get to be kids? He said that, that pushing, demanding kind of expectation, it, ex- it can exasperate a kid. It can burn them out. Uh, 
Now, of course, this is kind of a tricky one, right? Because good parents should push their kids. I mean, that's sort of the balancing act. Obviously, you don't want your kids just to do whatever they want. You have to challenge them. Uh, there should be a little bit of a coach in every parent. I don't know if you've ever been in sports, you had a good coach. One of the things about good coaches is they push you a little further than you thought you could do yourself. You know, you say, oh, I, I can only go this far, coach. Coach says, no, you can go that far. Oh, I can't, coach. Get out there and do it. So you're going, and then you go that far. And you're like, wow, coach was right. I could do a lot more than I thought I could. So a good coach will push a ch uh, a, an athlete further than they thought they could go. That's good coaching. But you know, there's boundaries. Coach also has to know how much is too far. And this is one of these balancing acts as a parent. It takes a lot of wisdom. That's why we need God in our lives to give us wisdom, how you balance these things. And sometimes, though, parents push too hard and too far to get success. It's like, I must get my child into the right preschool. Because <sighs> if I don't get in the right preschool, it's all over. And the trajectory is ruined for life. Because, because whether or not you get into the preschool you want to get into is going to determine which college I get into. And what college I get into determines what uh, grad school I get into. And I've got to get in the right college and the right grad school so I can get a really good job that pays a lot so I can move to a good town with a good house and a good school system and have children so I can perpetuate the cycle. You know, and, and, you know I'm being a little extreme here, but I mean, there's that, that kind of sense of like, Push, 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 into this kind of paranoia about failure. I mean, some of us are so obsessed with our success of our children. We, we've invested so much of our identity in the success of our children that it's like our children can't fail. What if they get a C? <gasps> a C. You know, a C. Oh, I've got to go to bring my kid to counseling now. Something's going terribly wrong. And, and there's some of us who are so vigilant over our children's success that it's like the kids. It's wilting under this, this thing where we're working out our issues on our children and sort of forcing them to fulfill the dreams that we had, or, you know, whatever, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Let me ask myself this. How much grace is there in your home? How much grace is in your home? Is there grace? You know, grace, grace means that you're kind to someone who's blown it. That's grace. Grace is, is being nice to someone who doesn't deserve it. Is there grace in your home? If your kids know that if they just blow it, that yeah, you'll be upset and yeah, there'll be some consequences, but there will be grace too. Do your children know that? Or is it just living under the, you know, the sword of Damocles, hanging over your head, always wondering what's going to happen because there's no grace in the home? And I think that kind of excessive expectation can crush a child. Even young men grow tired and weary. Young people grow faint. Children are not limitless in their energy. They need to be protected from that too. So excessive harshness can exasperate excessive, keep all these straight, favoritism, excessive um, expectations. But what about two more? And here I'd like to shift gears a little bit and say, you know, we've been talking about things that parents do that can exasperate children. But is it, isn't it also true there are sometimes that if Parents fail to do something that exasperates children. In other words, it's not an excess of, but maybe a lack of something. That um, uh, it's not just sins of commission, it's also sins of omission. So I think that sometimes there's things I can do as a parent, or fail to do as a parent, a lack of something. So it's not only excessive harshness, 
excessive favoritism, excessive expectations. We could probably list some other excesses. What about the lack of? What about the lack of two other things? First of all, the lack of discipline. What about the lack of discipline? Failing to discipline children exasperates children. Now you say, wait a minute. I, I thought kids are happy if they don't get disciplined. But yeah, in the short term. This is more a long view kind of thing. This is the kind of thing where after a child grows up and they realize their parents didn't take the time to show them what was right and wrong, they get exasperated and frustrated. So, so it's not so much immediate, but it's more of a long-term view. And let me just say that if you love your children, if you love your children, you will discipline them. Not disciplining children is an act of, of unlove, whatever the term is, toward children. Children need discipline. Unless your child was immaculately conceived and has no sin nature, which, you know, maybe your child's that way, fine. But if you have a normal child, they're a little sinner going to grow up to be a big sinner. We're all sinful. And so we need, we need correction. There's no child who just walks the perfect path and never does anything wrong. The only person who ever did that was Jesus Christ because he was born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit. But, but the rest of us haven't. He, so we need guidelines. We need structure. We need people to show us what right and wrong is and to let there be consequences. Maybe I should define discipline. I know some of you may be like, you know, just the word discipline in our sort of touchy-feely culture can freak people out. So let me tell you what I mean by discipline. And in fact, I, I wrote down the definition I was working with. It's in your sermon notes. Take out your sermon notes for a minute in your bulletin. Let me just tell you what I mean by discipline. <clears throat> when, I, when I'm talking about discipline, I mean, the, is there, it's there on the back at the top, the loving, consistent enforcement of undesirable consequences for bad behavior in order to teach right behavior and godly character. It's the loving, consistent enforcement of undesirable consequences for bad behavior in order to teach right behavior and godly character. So it's loving, first of all. This is not just, this isn't some nasty, mean-spirited thing. It's because you love children. If you really love your children, you're going to teach them right from wrong. Right from wrong. It's consistent. In other words, discipline is not just flying off the handle when you're frustrated. It's, it's consistent. It means that if you say this is the, the rule, then you consistently enforce the rule. If you say, don't do that or I'm going to do this, then when your child does this, you need to do that. It's consistency. It's the loving, consistent enforcement of undesirable consequences for bad behavior. So again, it's, it's the if-then statement. If you do this, here's the undesirable thing that will happen. Okay? So nagging is not discipline. Clean your room. Why don't you clean your room? I told you to clean your room. Hurry up, clean your room. That's not discipline. Discipline is, look, you need to clean your room. I know you want to go out tonight with your friends, but if your room isn't clean, you're not going out with your friends. Okay, okay. And then later on that evening, they didn't clean their room. And so you say, look, I'm sorry, you can't go out tonight. You're so unfair. You're so... Look, I'm sorry. I said you can't go out if, if you don't clean your room. That's discipline. It's the enforcement of consequences. It can be, it can be grounding. It can be timeouts for little kids. It can be the removal of privileges. But it's some kind of thing that a person wouldn't want. It can be spanking. Can I just say publicly, there's nothing wrong with spanking your kid. There's sort of this modern myth that spanking will harm children. This is so ridiculous. 
people, it's not until the last few nanoseconds of human history that we suddenly think spanking is bad for kids. <laughs> human history. People have always done this. And let me tell you what I mean by spanking. I mean a hand on the tush. Here's a lot back there, okay? You're not going to hurt your kid. You, it's almost impossible to injure a child by spanking them on the tush. It, it's, it's not going to hurt them. It doesn't injure their psyche. In fact, it's a good thing because it's immediate. There's an immediate connection between what I did wrong and the consequence. It's over. It's not parents sort of sulking around the house all day, giving you dirty looks. You know, it's like, when am I ever going to get out of the dirty look? It's just, it's quick, it's done. Move on with life. It's very effective, I think, especially with little children. But whatever. You can have your own views on that. The point is, there needs to be some kind of negative consequence for bad behavior. And it's a, it's a great thing, because discipline helps shape children. In fact, look at a text with me. It's the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is on page 1193. 1193. Hebrews chapter 12. Page 1193. Look at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is one of the ways I can interpret it is that God is training me up to be a better Christian. Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? That's the assumption. Look, parents discipline children. It's normal. It's only in our little modern culture today, like I said, the last few nanoseconds of human history here in America, that we suddenly think discipline's a bad thing. This is normal. This is throughout the scriptures, throughout cultures. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. In the long term, of course, but you do respect them for it. You appreciate it when you're an adult who can control your impulses, because when you were little, your parents helped you learn to control your impulses through discipline. Moreover, verse 9, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but good discipline, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Look at verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Yeah. Look, I, I know some of you are thinking, you know, I don't like to discipline. I don't like it. I don't know who does like it. Discipline stinks. It's not a hallmark moment. It's, it's, it's a bummer. I hate having to discipline my children. I wish they were just perfect. But look, you don't like it. Your kids don't like it. This is going to hurt you. Me and one is going to hurt you. All that stuff is true. Nobody likes doing discipline. But the reason we do it is this next verse, verse 11. Later on, after the discipline, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. And so I, I, what am I ranting and raving about here? I just want you to feel empowered as parents to discipline children when it's proper. According, and you work out how that is, what the discipline is. That's for you. You're the parent. You decide. But I'm going to say, be empowered. Because I, I just feel that we live in this culture that, that is so afraid of offending everybody and so afraid of, of hurting anyone's feelings that parents feel kind of emasculated, like they can't actually step in and tell their children 
this is right, this is wrong, and this is what you're going to get. And parents feel like they're being bad guys. It's an act of love to consistently and lovingly and with restraint discipline children. So that's another way we exasperate children. It's more long-term. We can exasperate children then by excessive harshness, excessive favoritism, excessive expectations, a lack of discipline. And then the final one, this is so important, a lack of attention. That's the big one. What children really want is mom and dad. They don't really want the extra house. They don't really want the boat. They don't really want the lift tickets. I mean, those things are great, but it's, that's our hang-up as parents. I'm the one who thinks, well, they have to have their own bedroom, and they have to have these toys, and this and this and this to be happy. It's like, you know, if I really listen to my kids, they're like, they got a library book from school. They just want me to read it to them. That's what they want. They just want to play with mom and dad. And, and I think, wow, and in this, again, this sort of ties back into expectations. This push, 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 push. You know, we're, we're just so obsessed with success and material prosperity that, that we'll do anything and sacrifice anything to get that. And we think that's what our kids want. You know, kids don't care. Little kids who grow up poor, they don't know they're poor. If mom and dad love them, they don't care. You think, oh, we've got to have this big house. And it's like a little kid grows up in an apartment in a loving home. It's not until he becomes an adult that he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I did grow up in a little apartment. Oh, oh I didn't even realize it at the time. Mom and dad loved me. I mean, that's what kids want. They want their parents. And, boy, I mean, this is something I have to keep watching myself. I'm, I'm a perfectionist, type A, A, A kind of person who's always push, push, pushing myself. That's how I've always been. And, and it's so easy to do that with kids. I remember one a couple weeks ago my son said, I, I bought him this board game for his birthday, Star Wars Epic Duels, and it's about all these little Star Wars guys. So we play Star Wars together. It's so cool. And, uh, and, and I, this, the other day I was home and I was puttering around the house, and my son said, hey, Dad, he said, he said, do you want to play Star Wars with me, or, or do you have time? I was just like, oh, yeah, I have time. Woo, yes, I do. All the time you want, son. And we need to be there for our kids. And, you know, it's cliche, but you only get one shot. It's really true. My father-in-law, when he started his career, he began as an investment banker in Philadelphia. He went to Wharton Business School. In fact, the guy was into... He told me he was in, into investing when he was in high school and college. When he was in high school and college, he used to buy the Wall Street Journal and invest in high school and college. So he was into it, all right? Went to Wharton, MBA, investment banking down in Philadelphia. Was doing really well, you know, prospering in his career. In fact, he did so well that he was offered a promotion. Uh, the problem was that the promotion would entail a lot of travel. I mean, up to that point, he had been working the long hours, which you always do in that kind of career. Um, but, but then on top of it, then it was, now you've got to travel around the country and do investment banking deals and stuff with other places around the, the country. So anyway, the hard thing for him was that he had a four-year-old daughter, who's my wife, and then he had a new baby that was just born. And so he's like, ah, oh, I want to be home with these kids. I want to have this, this career is great. And, and so how do you balance these two things? So this is how he balanced it. He quit. He just quit. He said, I'm not doing it. I don't care. And he and his wife together decided, we're going we're gonna to be poor. We're going to live simply. They moved back up to Plymouth from Philadelphia because that's where she was from. And they said, we're just going to buy ourselves a little shack somewhere. And we're, we're going to reduce our income real low. It's going to be real 
simple. We're just going to get by. He didn't know what he was going to do. Didn't have a job lined up. He had some money saved up from his investments. And, and you know, because when you're in investment banking, one of the great things is that you can make good investments. So he had, he had a little money saved up from that. Came up here to Plymouth and he said, uh, you know, maybe I could do real estate. He actually got his broker's license and almost started his own real estate company. In fact, down in his basement, he has little signs he printed up. His little real estate company. He said, I'm going to get involved in a local bank. And, you know, we're, we're not going to be rich, but we're going we're gonna to be around for the kids. He told me something interesting. He said, I grew up thinking that a man had to provide for his family. And he says, the thing that I figured out was that I'd always defined that financially. But if you provide for your family financially, but in no other way, have you really provided for your family? And what does it mean to provide for your family? How much do you really need? I mean, I think that all of us, myself included, I'm not preaching anyone here, this is me too, I think my, my sense of what I need is definitely an American suburban sense. You look around the world, what you really need is actually probably like this. It just, you know, we're, we're way out of kilter here in America, and I'm, I'm one of, I'm an American too, I'm part of this whole thing. So, so and he said, I, my, parents, my kids need me. And so he came up here, didn't have a job, didn't know what he's going to do, just kind of went on faith saying, I want to be there for my kids. Uh, tried this, tried that, didn't really work out. He said there are a lot of sleepless nights. They're laying awake wondering what, what are we going to do, how are we going to provide for the family. And of course, in his case, it just so happened that his wife, uh, through her father, had um, some shares in this really miserable cranberry company that was never, in the, was never in the black. It was always failing, and there was all these problems. And it was just kind of this almost like family hobby on the side. And so he said, well, maybe I'll try my hand at that. So he came in with his Wharton business background and tweaked this and you know, fired that guy and hired this guy and put in a sprinkler system. And what do you know? It suddenly was in the black. And then it kept at it and it kept growing. And, and eventually it became a successful cranberry company. So it's kind of like Solomon. You know how Solomon said, I want wisdom? And God gave him everything else? I feel like it's the same thing. You know, My father-in-law said, I want my family first, and God said, great, I'll give you everything else too. And, and, and I've always just stood in, in admiration of him for the way that he put his family first in that situation. And this is another cool thing. I was thinking about this last night. So because my father-in-law put his family first, he cranked out some really great kids. One of them is my wife. And because my wife is such an amazing, stable, uh, she is, she is I, I could go on just talking about my wife. She is so amazing, so awesome, so strong. Because of who she is, because my family is so strong because of her, it frees me to throw myself into pastoring you. So trace it backwards now. If you've been blessed in any way by anything I've done, humanly speaking, the number one reason I want to attribute it to is because of who my wife is which is tied back to a decision my father-in-law made. So his little decision to leave Philadelphia is having consequences that are affecting everybody. Isn't it amazing how when you obey God, God can use that little obedience that just seems like nothing and he can multiply it out for a harvest of righteousness. Well, let's pray, huh? Lord, I just confess, I'm, I'm still daunted by the task of parenting. Lord, I'm up here preaching, but I still feel like a neophyte myself. There's probably other people who could talk about parenting a lot better than I could, who have a lot more experience and a lot more success. But God, we thank you that you've given us your word. 
that you've told us what it means to not exasperate our children. I pray, God, that you would make application to each of our hearts. And, Lord, we, we realize that the only way we can really be good parents is if Christ is living in us, that it's only by being your children through the Holy Spirit, by being born again, by being real Christians in a biblical sense, that by Jesus living in our hearts, we can become the kind of parents that we need to be. And so, God, I, uh, I just cry out for your help. Like that song we sang earlier, Lord, I, I need new mercies, fresh mercies, rain them down. Every day I need mercy to know how to raise my kids better. God, I pray for every single parent or grandparent here that you would rain down that mercy of wisdom, of insight, that you would teach us how to be good parents to our children. Lord, if there's some part of our parenting that's a major gaping hole, I pray help us to shore it up, to do what needs to be done in order to be the kind of parents we need to be. Lord, help us to critique our American values, to not conform to the cultural way of thinking about life and values, but to conform our thinking to your word. Because, Lord, we look at our culture and it ain't working. So, Lord, we need what you have to say. Thank you, God, for this congregation. I just pray, bless them, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. Lord, may everyone leave here today with a blessing from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.